Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive GI Cancer Podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. We are very excited to introduce a roundtable discussion on the latest advances in gastrointestinal cancer presented at the ASCO 2021 annual meeting. This session is chaired by Tobias Arkenau from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute UK in London, who is joined by an international panel of leading GI cancer experts. Together, the panel will be discussing the results of key esophageal studies, including Checkmate 648 and Rational 302, as well as gastric cancer trials, including Keynote 811. In colorectal cancer, the panel examined first-line studies, including DEPA and Beacon, and maintenance trials, including Panama and Focus 4. The panel also offered their perspectives on the use of miliary in biliary tract and pancreatic cancers and data on trastuzumab deruxtecan in metastatic colorectal cancer from the Destiny CRC-01 trial. I'll now pass it over to the experts for today's GI cancer session with VJ Oncology. Hi, it's um, Toby Aknau here. I'm the medical director of the Sarah Research Institute in London. I'm a GI oncologist, and I'm really excited to share with you and a team of five colleagues around the world um, the latest updates on GI cancers um, from ASCO 2021. And first of all, I want to say thank you to VJ Oncology to make this happening. And without any further ado, let me introduce you to um, Dr. Lizzie Smith. Lizzie Smith is associate Professor at the University of Cambridge, Edinburgh's Hospital in the UK, a GI lead, upper GI lead um, around the world, heavily involved in ERTC and ESMO. Um, next, um, very um, welcome to um, Deborah Mukherjee. Um, Deborah is also GI oncologist, associate professor at the American University in Beirut, and um, also heavily involved in GI NTU um, research. Um, and works with ESMO and um, collaborates uh, around the world with um, various different GI oncologists. Um, Natalia Uberham um, at Wisconsin Medicine um, Center, an associate professor there, leads um, the early phase one program and GI cancers, and was this year discussing of the poster um, discussions at ASCO and will share her insight in, in some of the updates in um, GI cancer. And Susanna Ulahanen um, leads the phase one um, center at the University of Oklahoma and um, also GI oncologist involved in many early and late stage clinical trials. Kakin is a colleague of mine here in London, um, oncologist at University College London and HCA. So let me um, start with probably the most exciting bits, um, really practice changing um, bits, um, uh, Lizzie, um, upper GI cancer, squamous cell esophagus, there, there have been um, updates, um, new entry of um, immunotherapies, two relevant studies, Keynote 648 and the um, study, Japanese study, Escort 1. Um, how do you put them into the context of our current practice? How do you see um, this um, or these two studies practice changing or do you see them practice changing? Thanks for the question, Toby. First of all, I need to own up to not being an associate professor in Cambridge uh, or I'll get in trouble at work. So, But thank you. I would like to be uh, possibly in a few years. So, uh, so uh, squamous cell cancer of the esophagus is a really important global problem. So although we get a lot of adenocarcinoma patients in the UK and the States, 
globally by far squamous is the much more common. And for many years, this was really an orphan disease, no drug development. So it's fantastic to see these trials emerging uh, with efficacy of immune checkpoint blockade for these patients and also changing the practice of care and helping these patients to live longer. Uh, so there were two trials uh, were squamous cancers. Uh, the first that you mentioned was at checkpoint 648. This was a global trial uh, in which patients with previously untreated squamous esophageal cancer, which is advanced and incurable, uh, were randomized to either standard of care chemotherapy, uh, standard of care chemotherapy plus uh, PD-1 antibody nivolumab, or a third arm with no chemotherapy and uh, double doublet immunotherapy, so an anti-CTLA-4 antibody ipilimumab plus nivolumab. Uh, so the first readout uh, was for patients uh, with treated with chemotherapy plus nivolumab. And it's interesting that the primary endpoint was in patients who were uh, PDL1 positive using a tumor marker for PDL1, which was a TPS score. So now over the past couple of years, we've got used to looking at PDL1 expression in esophageal cancers and we know that that's, a, that's using the microenvironment as well as the tumor, and it's probably a better marker uh, for uh, success of immunotherapy in these patients. But the, the readout was really amazing. So patients uh, who were treated with chemotherapy had a survival of about nine months, which is what we expect. And when we added nivolumab, we improved the response rate, the progression-free survival, and the overall survival, overall survival being 15 months, uh, which was really fantastic. Uh, and uh, so this is a practice-changing trial for those patients. In the old comers group, so unselected by the PDL1 biomarker on the tumor, uh, the advantage was a little less. It was 2.5 months. And you've got to ask the question: was that 2.5 months being driven by the patients who were expressing the PDL1? Uh, so I think there's unanswered questions there. They didn't present the data for the PDL1 negative patients. And I would like to see that. Uh, the other study uh, was an Asian study looking at camerlizumab. And interestingly, in patients also, a similar patient population, but no 5-FU backbone uh, in the study. And I think that we're all used to using a 5-FU backbone in Europe also had positive results. So I, I think that we can see that there is a group of squamous cancers who are sensitive to immune checkpoint blockade. And these patients benefit from using this with chemotherapy. Uh, and it's all about, I think, selecting the right group of patients. What we need to see is the CPS scores uh, from the Checkmate 648. So I think it's been indicated that that has been, not yet been presented. Using TPS, about 50% of patients believe that it, uh, when CPS is used. So I'll be interested to see what the regulatory approvals are. I know that's a very, very important and good point. My, my question, of course, we have a choice of two immunotherapy backbones, effectively one IO-IO and one chemo-IO. What's, what's your choice? Who, who gets chemo? Who gets... Um, I am. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to say, if it's, if it's a, what would you treat your granny with, Tess? Uh, I would say I would give this, the, the, the chemotherapy doublet backbone. Uh, my concern uh, for the nivolumab and ipilimumab is that uh, although there was a benefit in terms of overall survival, what we see and what we're used to seeing at this stage is if we don't use chemotherapy in these moderately sensitive populations and early progression. So some patients are disadvantaged by using the immune doublet instead of chemotherapy. So 
There may be, of course, valid reasons for some patients not to use chemotherapy, but I think you would need to have a, a conversation with those patients about maybe the 25 or 30% of patients who did experience early progression. So uh, if, it, if it were me for my patients and the approval, I think there's no approval yet for the immunotherapy doublet, even in the United States, and maybe our colleagues here can, can comment on that, but certainly the approval is there with chemotherapy, similar to what was seen uh, in the previous study with pembrolizumab. And, but certainly, you know, both results are good for patients with squamous cancer. So uh, um, they're very, very happy to see these results evolving. Natalia, Susanna, any comments from VS? Is that practice changing for you in terms of, I mean, what would you, um, with VS approval, it's probably much easier to, to get um, than in Europe or the UK? Like you said, Natalia, uh, I absolutely agree with uh, Lizzie's summary. I think this was a great summary of the study. And uh, we've had some surprising approvals, I think, in the U.S. Um, in adenocarcinomas that um, were approvals not based on biomarkers. And we know from prior studies, and we know now from the publications that look at subgroup analysis, that these agents do not work that well in patients with lower pd one score. Um, that being said, this is a practice-changing study. And I absolutely agree with Lizzie that for patients who are chemotherapy candidates, chemotherapy plays a role. We need responses, which is why you saw that overlap again across all of the curves early on to the treatment of the disease. I think the other question remains what to do with all the second-line studies that were done in patients with, uh, who have not received prior immunotherapy, because I think those are becoming much less relevant, and we really will need to look at combinations with IO past first lines. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with both of you. Um, the approval right now is with chemo, so that's what we're going to use. But I think, you know, with the data, with immunotherapy alone, I think in those that are high pdl one expression, you know, just to pick and choose where you think they can't tolerate chemo, um, or also when they have very high expression or patients, there are some patients that really doesn't want chemotherapy. So I think for all those type of patients, I think this is a very good option. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one, one of the questions, um, obviously, designing clinical trials, second-line studies, how do we design them? So, like, you know, you, um, Natalia, you, you said correctly, I mean, the second-line immunotherapies, there was a study, the Rational 302, which was also positive against um, uh, chemo. Um, these become relatively irrelevant um, if you use upfront IOs. Um, but how do we rescue the IO? IO combos, how do we, do we need to add, you know, we've seen very interesting data on tiriginumab, the, the um, digit um, combos in, in other tumor types like lung um, and, and gynecological cancers. Will that be the, the second line rescue? Will be, and again, I've, I've seen some data, some patients become actually extremely sensitive to toxins. So is that the, the new chemo arm? What's with Arnitikin that the drugs we're using as well in this setting? So maybe um, Kaikin. Um, yeah, so it's going to be relevant if we get to talk about Kino 177 because everyone's talking about maybe beyond Pembro and and doublet and uh, doublet neo ipi and chemo. So I think the interesting thing is this that I absolutely agree with Lizzie and uh, Natalia and Susanna. You know, it is practice changing for the squamous subpopulation. Um, I think that what my concern is that I think that platinum is great, but there'll be a group of patients who maybe have had platinum 
within six months of, you know, I don't know, carbotaxol or some other chemotherapy in the radical uh, setting with chemo-RT, don't want to give platinum. The IPI bit is important. I really think that CTL4 inhibition is, it kind of fell behind a bit. You know, everyone was just going for PD-1, PD-1. But I think there's something about giving CTL4 inhibition, you know, the exhausted T cells. And are we missing a trick here that if you give platinum with PD-1, yes, you get your increased response rate. Yes, you get your maybe slightly better uh, PFS, but then you lose a little bit of that duration of response. And we've seen this in some of the keynote studies in head and neck when they gave kind of chemo Cetux, chemo Pembro and all those kind of things. And I think that um, I don't know how you can integrate IPI to rescue those relapsed patients. Though there was a nice talk, I think, by Tony Rebus in a kind of education session about using combos to kind of uh, um, rescue the, pem- uh, the the patients who have relapsed on immunotherapy. So I, I do worry that we're we're missing a trick here. And I and I, I think Tijit gets all those combinations be interesting and going to potentially offer patients chemo-free remissions i mean forever and th- th- wouldn't that be so cool if you stratify those patients up front well i think that in particular tidget looks very good in squamous lung cancer and i believe the early data in esophageal will also be good and you know they're looking at trials already integrating tidget into earlier stages of uh squamous cancer so uh, uh in the chemo radiotherapy uh frame uh, so I, I think it will really be about translational research, won't it? Because are the drivers of resistance innate and acquired the same or different uh, according to histology uh, and according to site of disease? So I, I think really the translational outputs of, uh, of in particular early phase studies and pretreatment biopsies will be really important in informing those decisions in future. I can see everyone nodding their head when you're talking about translational studies. And I just wanted to jump in that you started with the fact that squamous cell esophageal cancer is a a big problem in parts of the world where patients don't have access to immunotherapy. So I think in terms of the global oncology view, those translational studies and knowing about the biomarkers and who really will benefit from either immunotherapy combinations or immunotherapy upfront is really where academically we should be trying to put you know, more of our energy, if that's possible. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and again, to Lizzie's very early comments, um, we don't have pd one status, we don't have TMB. We would expect TMB probably much higher than in in the adenocarcinoma um, population. But I, I think one lessons learned, lesson learned is if you think about the um, 649 study in adenocarcinoma, where actually the epinevoam was stopped simply because the higher dose of, of epi, the top, you know, in, in Kakin mentioned it, it, it probably was became a bit out of fashion, the use of epinevo, um, probably because the epidose was too high, too toxic. And, and so now on one milligrams per, per kilogram EP and three um, nevo, um, that, that kind of regimen, you know, it certainly resulted in, be, in better outcome and you know, patients could receive treatment. So you know, I think, you know, very, very interesting data and, and you know, certainly, a disease. Think about the squamous esophageal, where only 50% of patients make it to second-line treatment. Yeah. So, if we stabilize, rescue them, and, and offer them really newer treatments, a great, great opportunity. Let me let me change um, gear. Of course, there's another um, interesting data, which um, uh, is the the keynote 811. So, combining um, the um, pembrolizumab 
um, Herceptin and chemo um, versus Herceptin chemo Fox backbone, um, which kind of was interesting because it got a fast track FDA approval based on response. What are we making out of this, um, Lizzie, and then the, the, the rest? I, I think that we need to ask the Americans to comment on FDA decisions because in sometimes I feel a little bit uncomfortable commenting on the regulatory decisions of other countries' authorities. I'm not sure, having been to EMA, I'm not sure that it would we could get past EMA in terms of response. But I'm going to say this. You know, there may be the perception that this is a premature decision based on response. But if we look at the data for immune checkpoint blockade, in gastroesophageal cancer, response correlates to long-term outcomes. So even look at the long-term follow-up for attraction two, which was the first study of nivolumab in chemofractory gastric cancer, the 12% of patients who responded in that study had a median survival of about two years. So there is, we, we know that there is that correlate between response and long-term outcomes. And, you know, if I, I'll, you know, I'll eat my hat if that study is negative, but uh, I'm going to hand it over to the Americans to ask their opinion. I share some of your sentiment that we've had some surprising approvals recently, but I think out of all of them, this was probably warranted. I mean, it was hard to ignore those waterfall plots. Their response rate of over 70% with addition of pembrolizumab. And also now coming after two phase two trials that showed similar responses, I think is difficult to ignore. And these patients have a lot of need. I mean, this is a huge unmet need. Um, and so I think I am certainly going to start using immunotherapy in first-line setting in my patients with HER2-positive tumors based on these results. But as I said in my uh, discussion of this abstract during ASCO, we do need to wait for overall survival data. We do need more mature data. This was a pre-planned analysis, but only about half of patients were enrolled. I think the pre-planned analysis after about 260 patients, the total study is 650 or so patients. So there's still a lot more data to be collected. But it looks good as far. I'm interested actually in where this will potentially leave the studies which are looking at just, for example, mahogany, which are looking at uh, PD-1 uh, and uh, HER2 uh, doublet without chemotherapy, because mm -hmm. how high does this set the bar when you've got a response rate of 90%? for you to want to offer a chemotherapy-free option. Uh, and I think that will be really, I mean, hopefully that's a conversation that we'll be able to have in future, but I think that will be really interesting. And that, I think the difference between the mahogany trial, they're looking at the, in a chemo-free arm, they're looking at very biomarker-specific patient yes, population. Yes, right? They have to be one positive or 2 positive. In Keenon 811, they did not require pd one positivity, but amazingly, 80% of patients or more are still pd one mm. positive. Um, so I, th I think we, I think there's questions to be answered, but yes, uh, the, the study with Margotuximab is an interesting one to follow. Yeah, with the mahogany study, just I have several patients on it and the quality of life is just, can't compare it with, you know, with the chemo arm. Um, both drugs are so well tolerated. Patients are really having a, a good quality of life. So it's gonna be a discussion with the patient, looking at the data, looking at quality of life. What you know, what are the goals of the patient? I think uh, we're going to get to that. It's really a great time to be an oncologist, right? We have options. You know, it's not, this is it. And, you know, we don't have anything else. I think it will be much more personalized and, and just see what the goals are for each patient. And we may have to start teasing out things like 
how long does it take to get to the response, right? All these things yeah. will become important to how deep the responses are. Dr. Jinjigian did talk about the depth of response in her presentation, something that we actually didn't discuss before in these tumors because the options were so limited. Uh, so I agree. I think it's good to have options and you'll need to learn how to sequence them too. I just want to jump in there. I, I recruited quite a few people in the UK for the Kino 811. And I, I think in the last meeting, Asker Joe, we said that one of the problems is these people are quite sick and they do need a, an early response. So I definitely saw extremely good response. I wasn't sure whether it was because I just picked very fit people, you know, because they're PS01 and therefore they were going to do well on chemo. But I really was encouraged by that. And I've got some patients I put, I think must be on pembrolizumab because they've got some minor effect and they're, they're, they're doing great. My concern, as you said, was that it was a read of about 260 patients of actually, I think it's about 800 patients that have extended the cohort. And um, if you look at the response rate, it wasn't quite as good as 90. It was 74% versus 50%. The good news, I agree with that, was that when you look at um, Yelena's study in phase two, at least it wasn't wor much worse than that, because often that's what we see, isn't it? You say phase two, it's amazing. And then in phase three, it's like, mm, it's like 20% less response rate. And I think what's interesting is the PFS was exactly the same. But again, this is what we saw in the squamous population is the OS is going to pull out later, you know, and you're going to get, I think, as Toby had said, there's an interesting study in lung where second line dose of Taxol after first line Pembro, response rates were 22% versus 8% in I think Kino 10. So that's probably what's gonna happen, I think, in these first line Pembro studies that the second line chemo or even re-challenge of chemo. So some of my patients who had, you know, chemo plus Pembro plus Receptin and then progress them and again, then back on chemo, they've had fantastic responses. And I think there's something about that. So in a way, the Americans jump in, they make the bold statement, Sometimes they're absolutely right and they absolutely is great. Sometimes they're not quite there. Then I hate to say the rest of the world do all the translational stuff to catch up with them, but they usually make the right decisions, you know, because that's the way. I mean, and in some ways, it's great that you have those FDA kind of uh, early orphan indications. I, I completely agree. This stop and go approach, you know, I think um, when patients stay on for a very long time, that, you know, I, that's very compelling. Okay, great. A really great discussion. And, and I want to shift um, gears a bit into colorectal cancer. Although, I mean, you know, you, you, you see the last um, 30 minutes, um, great excitement, really practice changing um, treatments in esophageal and gastric cancer. Um, colorectal cancer has been, for me at least, a, a more looking into biomarkers, a bit more detailed. Um, um, some studies we were waiting for, they just probably confirmed what we would have expected in our day-to-day -day practice. But I think nonetheless, very important that we have them out and, and confirming what we um, thought about, and particularly about the RAS wild type, BRAF mutant, and Deborah, any, any views on that? And, and you know, your view on practice changing, what do we need to do? Do we need to do triple regimens up front or do we do sequential? You know, all these kind of questions, including of course the the chemo breaks and maintenance question. So so a big um you know ask for you to summarize your views. Sure, sure. So I think moving to colorectal cancer, we have less exciting data ASCO this year. Um, but as you mentioned, we're trying to refine how we use the the tools that we have um, so the first trial uh, that we saw was a, a randomized phase two, the deeper study, a randomized phase two 
study from Japan. And that was looking at the question of using triplet um, therapy upfront. So Falcock theory uh, plus cetuximab or bevacizumab in patients with RAS wild type um, colorectal cancer in the first line. And this used an interesting endpoint. So we've been talking about uh, depth of response and correlates in immunotherapy, but in chemotherapy, we have this impression that we like our patients to have an early and a deep response to treatment, but we haven't really conclusively proven that this definitely correlates with overall survival. Um, and this trial um, shows an interesting endpoint end of depth of response. And they were looking, uh, and the trial was actually positive um, so the arm randomized to um, Folpox theory plus cetuximab had a deeper response on average, but actually there was no difference in other markers such as overall response rate or resection rate um, and no difference in the preliminary data for PFS and overall survival. So the question that was discussed is really, does this change our management? Um, probably not. Uh, the majority of these tumors, as we see uh, in real life, were left-sided tumors. But again, as expected, the patients with right-sided tumors did less well with the addition of cetuximab. So I'm not sure it really changes our, our clinical practice. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if the panel could comment when that they would choose to use Folfox theory as a first-line treatment uh, in their patients with colorectal cancer. It's not something that we'd commonly do um, in all of patients who have RAS wild type disease. Um, perhaps I can um, perhaps I can ask someone to to comment on when they would use this triplet treatment when to intensify chemotherapy. Perhaps the patient that needs a really rapid response, or the patient who you feel um, has you know, lots of symptoms due to their disease. Um, perhaps I could. Uh, ask Kaikin, in which patients are you choosing Folfox theory upfront for in colorectal cancer? Yeah, oh, that's, thanks for the question. I mean, I think basically there's a question of less is more, and I, this one is more is not more. So I think that in the end, with now all the targeted potential agents in first and second line, I'm far less keen to give someone upfront Folfox theory even in a BRAF mutant patient now, actually, I think that, you know, it depends on the burden, you know, I'm talking about the tumor burden and, and the patient's fitness and things like that. But, but even in a really fit patient necessarily, um, I'm not sure I would rush in. I might give, I, I standardly give like one cycle of Folfox, get all the profiling done and then add in the uh, chemo plus maybe um, bevacizumab and or other things on cycle two or three. And I, no one's ever done a trial of that, but I think it's generally good because it manages the patient expectations and also saves things for later. You know, I do think that all in is, is useful. And, and, and we've shown in the Olivia trial, we've shown in kind of, in kind of the other studies of, you know, you give a load of chemo and somehow the, the R0 resection rate doesn't improve, you know, um, what are we actually trying to do for these patients? So personally, I think that when you say you're giving targeted therapy with Folfoxiriavastin, that is not targeted therapy. That is hedge your bets like hell, okay? And then hopefully you get a bit of uh, response and survival and, uh, so, well, stability. And then I would yeah. it massively, but I don't, I don't know what the um, what the other panel thinks. I, I'm really kind of, a, I don't like... Um, I do give Folfoxiri, but I don't give it really upfront on cycle one or two. I, I try to think about it and then add it in. 
And I think, unfortunately, often the patients who need the response most are those who are least likely to tolerate it, isn't it? So uh, we do use, um, I do use Falfox theory for BRAF mutants, depending on the situation. There's a lot of BRAF mutant patients who have bad peritoneal disease and might not tolerate uh, Falfox theory. Uh, and I've also used it in RAS mutant patients. We don't have access to bevacizumab in the NHS. So, you know, ultimately, if I did, I might be more comfortable giving them a doublet with bevacizumab. But uh, if we don't have that choice, uh, I, I think using a triplet is, is OK for young patients. And sometimes in the neoadjuvant setting uh, to debulk really horrible tumours to get them to surgery. Uh, and sometimes I have before uh, CRS and HIPEC actually for BRAF mutant patients, but it's not a standard. I agree. It's it's not. I would use doublet much much more frequently than Fafoxiri. That's um, that's very. I, I was very excited to see the. I really look forward to see the molecular analysis of the Beacon study. I was somewhat a bit disappointed um, the way it was presented. I'm not sure. Um, Deborah, any any views on this? Um, you know, it, it was the comparison doublet versus triplet. Um, I thought we left that debate already, but you know, maybe, maybe your view um, on on Beacon and the molecular subtype sure. analysis. Uh, so these were patients who um, who were who had whole transcriptome uh, sequencing of the initial tumor specimen, and we we're trying to really tease out which of the patients that really need the triplet. Uh, the, the addition of the triplet therapy, um, and I think that their conclusion was that they did find um, they did find certain um, molecular subtypes, the more immunologically inflamed subtypes, perhaps, which have a benefit. But um, I, I think the problem is that the access to these types of whole transcriptome sequencing is going to be um, limited. Um, I don't know if our colleagues in the US could comment. So. Uh, we certainly don't have access to that sort of thing on a um, clinical basis. Is that something which uh, your patients would have access to, to divide them as a biomarker into who should have triplet rather than doublet therapy? Perhaps I can ask Natalia. Yeah, it is not part of the standard of care right now. So no, we would not have that in clinic either. Yeah. So I think that's probably far off, although it's an aspiration for the future. Um, to try and better define those molecular subtypes. So who are really going to benefit from our um, uh, you know, toxic and expensive combinations of therapies. And I think this is probably something that needs a little bit more work. And some of the circulating biomarker work is looking a lot more interesting, I think, because we know that we have many changes. Um, we have lots of, and potentially not the BRAF mutant patients, but the RAS type patients, lots of evolving mutations which are going to be important to detect. So I think my prediction is that the future will be in circulating biomarkers to refine our treatment strategies for colorectal cancer. Yeah, I must agree. I mean, I would have expected even in analysis like this, we have co-mutations. What are the ones who, who don't respond at all? What patients, despite having the E600E mutation, um, I was missing that completely. And, and, you know, it was a bit like bring the triplet regimen back into the game and, and try to identify. I mean, it's important work. I, I, I don't disagree, but I, I would have probably for, for NASCO presentation expected a bit more practice relevant. You know, if I'm sitting in my genomics review board, I want to know what is my V600E plus co-mutation X and Y doing, APC, P53, 
And we know that those patients don't do well, and they progress even on on a um, BRAF, cetuximab, tablet after three to four months. Versus, you know, where where the good ones, where the ten months people. So that's something I, I um, you know, again think about this. These are very trans important translational research studies where lots of tissues is utilized. So hopefully. You know, the, the, there's tissue left to do these other analyses. And um, they may be not that great, um, but, you know, I, I was a bit more hopeful that we get more, more analysis. We need to, as you said, in gastric cancer and in, in colorectal, we need to move on from that field. We, we have the tools, the toys to, to molecularly identify um, colorectal cancer. And, and I, I think we really have to move, move that on. Um, yeah, so there, there were other studies, um, again, in, in the oral presentation um, session, um, less is more maintenance therapy. And again, you know, um, Deborah, Susanna, maybe you want to comment on this. Um, Panama, um, and then Focus. Kakin, you were the, the MRC UK um, uh, fellow on, on Focus. You, you know, you were funded. This is your career, Focus. So tell us about... Um, some some of those um, data and how how this is relevant um, in in the context. Um, so let's start with Focus Four. So I first of all, say you know it was a brave endeavour. Okay, I mean Focus Four was yes funded massively, and I was a fellow for about eighteen months with them. I think that I learned actually I probably learned more about how not to do uh, basket studies from it, and I still learned a lot. So you know it got me into my field. And um, how how maybe you just can't do everything all in one go, and you have to regulatory approve everything. And even I think um, the modal studies struggled, and even um, uh, in America they they struggled to do their their thing. But I think that the focus for N group was interesting to be presented. I mean, I think that it was a bucket kind of arm because we were trying more to push the BRAF arm, which didn't pull through the the her two and uh, the all wild type arm. And now there's some really other interesting subarms which will eventually get published, but they were ended, we changed the design of the study. So I think you've got to think about this. I, the only analogy I couldn't think about when we were thinking about was that Cairo three, which you know, even that is not necessarily practice changing. We had this big thing is how much does bevacizumab add to capsaicin? There wasn't a capsaicin in the arm. Would this be like a kind of Cairo three without a vaccine? It didn't really turn out that way because we completely skewed the the types of patients who ended up in the focus for NRM. I think what was interesting was, and you've got to remember when you look at Panama versus um, focus for N, the PFS um, addition, it looks minor because it's like, oh my God, only four months, but you've got to remember they had a lot of induction chemo. They had about you know 16 weeks of induction chemo, but actually it was interesting that there wasn't a, there was some difference, whether it was clinically meaningful, I don't know. And I don't know it's necessary practice changing, but what's the flip side was Cairo 3 kind of said in the responding patients, you should push maintenance, actually, both in Panama and in Focus 4. And it says, actually, you shouldn't. And I like this because it means the responding patients should have a break, a proper break, you know, as in if you're clever about this, you don't even need to stratify to cDNA or anything like that. You just say, look, these responding patients are probably going to do well. You can give them a six, eight, 
12 week break. And the ones who need it are the ones who only achieve stabilization. So I, that's a roundabout way of saying that neither, I think, Panama, which I'm, someone else can comment on the Panama trial, because I think, you know, I massively respect Dominic as well, uh, who's kind of my age and, you know, feeling his way around. I, I think that it was a, it's a good endeavor. I don't think it's going to practice change. It already kind of tells us what we're going to do in maintenance, but it's good to get those studies out and, and, and you know, um, discuss that oral presentation? I think it's important because this is a question which, um, you know, a lot of patients are having quite toxic maintenance treatments. Um, and, and this is, you know, really the question, is it really doing them any good? And uh, there's a lot of sort of unevidence-based practice which goes on out there. Um, and patients getting a lot of toxicity, particularly with you know, drugs with visible, visible side effects, uh, which affect the patient. So I think this is really important data that you, to, you know, get out there and to get published. It is important, but I'd like to again ask Susanna and Natalia, you see, because these kind of first line studies um, in the NHS, right, we have only access to EGFR, let's be honest, in the NHS and first line. So we are pushing our patients, on, you know, on long term frontline EGFR, maybe with benefit and some maybe not. And it came up again in Keynote 177, everyone should get access to immunotherapy. Well, not everyone in the world can get access to both first line and second line and on relapse immunotherapy. So I think that this is the difficulty, isn't it? That um, if you have a really great um, healthcare system where you have got approval in every line, you can do rechallenge and second line, that's fine because you can think very far ahead of yourself. But if you have limited options, we normally still say, choose the best option in first line because that's probably the the line that is going to give you that benefit in long term because you don't maybe have access to the rechallenge of EGFR. So again, just want to ask Natalia and Susanna, both in in your Calangio field and things, do you have that feel that you know, because regulatory things get in the way, you can't actually do everything you want to do, that even in the clinic? I, you know, in, in the U.S., during the treatment of colon cancer, we have access to all of the approved in the U.S. agents, right? Bevacizumab and TGFR agents, long term. So in, in, and in our practice at UW, I think we concentrate a lot on sequencing these therapies. We actually have an investigator initiated trial led by Dr. Demi, who's looking at first-line MTG and the EGFR, looking at patterns of resistance with circulating markers, and then trying to even reuse anti-EGFR agents down the line, although traditionally everybody started on first-line chemotherapy. So that's not as big of an issue here. And, and, and really, my strategy with colon cancer patients are, is who are not resectable, uh, of course, or not candidates for ablative local regional therapies to deliver is to expose them to as many therapies as possible and try to sequence them as to my best ability. So some of the maintenance trials, I thought it would be interesting because it's always a struggle to keep patients in chemotherapy for a very long time and people want treatment breaks. And so I thought it was nice to see some of the data that justifies treatment break because I'm always worried about stopping chemo. And I think I'm biased by the fact that most of my patients are GI patients and we know that stopping chemotherapy in that patient population um, is probably not the right thing to do. Um, and a lot of patients deteriorate quite rapidly. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I just feel like uh, just looking at my patient population, we see all these young patients, you know, more and more. I have patients that are in the 20s, 30s, 40s, right, uh, with young families and, you know, keep asking they want a chemo break, you know. And so I really feel like this gave, 
you know, some more meat, right? That we can give them chemo breaks. And I, I think it's very important. Because these patients, they have, they stay on treatment for years and years and years. And, you know, just to balance, you know, quality of life versus uh, longevity. But isn't it a decision that needs to be made on an individual patient level, right? Because absolutely. I think, you know, I, th I think absolutes are, are that we shouldn't have them, you know, because some patients will want to stay. I have some patients who've been on ovarian seduximab for three years and they wouldn't hear of stopping it. You know, whereas some, for some patients, three months of treatment is enough because they don't like to come to the hospital, even, you know, they, they maybe have a low disease burden. And I think that, you know, we can, it, it, there are so many trials that often you can find evidence to support whatever argument that you want to make, you know, and if, if a patient's, you know, for me, if a patient's disease is not an immediate threat to their health and they want to have a break, I think we need to be sensible about these things and, you know, really uh, have a shared decision making. But often they do want us to tell them what to do, I think. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with either approach, I have to say, depending on the patient. We need to have the, I, I guess, the honest discussion and debate with the patient. We, I mean, again, it's so easy to continue the, the drug and sign the, the chemo form or press a button, hey, chemo, go on. It is this honest debate, actually, that it doesn't affect. At least, I mean, we haven't seen any overall survival benefit of, of um, continuous treatment. So, um, and, you know, Selena, you said correctly, I mean, we see increasingly younger patients. And, and of course, it's our own conscious we want to keep them alive keep them on treatment but really does this um um result in, in better outcome you know i i think seeing some of the the debates and this was not only in gi um, this year's ASCO was about you know this less is more um do we need to have as well as an oncologist the responsibility to have these honest discussion about actually continuing on beyond cycle 10 and, and whatever may not um, be the right thing to do. Um, and, and we rather have a strategy to reintroduce you. Um, and, you know, probably we learn, and again, the debate, I mean, the Optimox studies were, how old are they? 10 years, you know? And we, it, it feels a bit like a second revival, like we, we have been there before. So it's kind of, it's nothing new, actually. We know this, and what, we just need to implement this. Um, okay, biliary treat cancers. Um, I found, um, again, last year, big, um, obviously, presentations on FGFR and IDH1. And so this year, um, Natalia went back to, to chemo. And, and I, I think a very relevant question, probably similar to the squamous cell esophageal population. These patients often poorly, um, they can't tolerate a second-line treatment. We waited pretty much um, up to just recently for defined second-line treatment. And here we have um, one presented um, with, with Naliri and, and Fibrofuel. Um, your view on this and, and um, are you using it in day-to-day -day practice already? So I'm actually planning to use it for one of my patients next week. Um, I, I thought this was a great study. So for bile duct cancers, first-line treatment remains gemcitabine and cisplatin, so the platinum agent. There is an ongoing phase three study, uh, gemcis abraxin versus gemcis, but the results are not mature, and a lot of our patients will not be a candidate for triple therapy in first line. So then we get to second line. We are all very excited about all of the biomarker-based studies, and we talked about them up to GI ASCO. It's great. However, it's at most 25 to 30% of patients who uh, 
in, in whose tumors we find something. So that leaves 75% of patients to whom we have limited treatment options. And ABCO6 was an important trial. It was a phase three trial that looked at Folfox versus best supportive care. It was a positive trial. The signal was there. It was not numerically, the numbers did not look that great, right? Um, especially in terms of PFS. And you looked at oxaliplatin after progression on cisplatin. So also, you know, there's a two, two platinum agents. And so I was excited to see this study. This was a phase two trial, phase two B trial, as opposed to phase three trial, this was ABC06. If you look at the number of patients, actually, it was almost identical in each arm. It was 80 patients in each arm. But in this study, they actually compared 5-A-Few alone to 5-A-Few plus null ERA, similarly to the study, Napoleon one study that was done in pancreas, acaline pancreatic cancer. And it was a positive study, significant improvement in OS, significant improvement in PFS. PFS was a primary endpoint. Um, of course, you can't compare study to study, but numerically, it looked better than full Fox. And I think for me, uh, looking at the response rate, looking at the OS, looking at the fact that we are changing mechanistically one chemo agent, platinum agent to non-platinum agent, um, makes me more excited about this regimen as a possibility for my patients in second line. I think phase three study is going to be tough because it's a rare disease type. And I don't think they'll have the, you know, it will take years to complete, but well, this was a great study. Yeah, I, I must say, I, I use actually the, the um, more often actually as well in pancreatic cancer. So like these kind of from Fox theory first line, I have completely stopped this and, and do effectively gem um, Abraxane, and then Naleri, and then Tolfox, if, if simply from a toxicity um, point of view. Um, so I, I think there's a bit of a resurgence of, of this in, 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 you know, in biliary cancers now as well. So quite, quite interesting. Anyone, is this practice changing for you or just, uh, um, I, I think it's solid enough. It's a phase 2B study. Um, I probably don't need to see a big randomized phase 3 study. Anyone it's not FDA approved, though. That's true. Right. Yeah. It's not. I have a question about the Naliri bit. I mean, so, you know, again, Deborah is saying real world. I mean, you know, if we wanted to go cheap as chips, you would give them full theory, right? And there was some data around, you know, when the triple negative breast, NAB taxol with a TZO versus why don't we just taxol? Right. And, and then, you know, what is it? What, is it something amazing about life, you know, being a lipid or not? So I just wanted your view because we don't standardly give. I, I mean, there are some trials of for 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 versus cisgen for neoadjuvant uh, biliary tract, but I think it's a negative. I think it's a negative study. So where is suddenly that the oh, let's just go with not only a rhinotecan, which has, I think, limited effort. I'm mean, five FU. Yes, absolutely. Limited evidence of rhinotecan, but let's go with it. Let's go with a, a Nalir. I mean, what do you think about that? I think arenotecan does have activity in this disease based on small studies. It's a pancreatic biliary disease. Again, you bringing up the point will be of Ophiranox and pancreas. We have some overlapping uh, biology and probably sensitivity to chemo. So um, I, you know, this was likely a company-sponsored study, I think, uh, with Labosomal uh, uh, arenotecan. Um, I don't know what, how much benefit liposomal renotecan provides over renotecan here. I think there's some preclinical data showing that the tumor has, well, I know there's preclinical data showing that the tumor has higher exposure to the active ingredient of renotecan with liposomal disease and maybe less toxicities. But um, I, don't, I don't think we will ever have a definitive answer. And I think it is very reasonable to use full theory in the countries 
and communities where access to liposomal immunity can is limited. And now, I mean, in pancreas cancer, they have their ongoing trial with uh, switching the irinotecan to the liposomal irinotecan. Not a head-to-head -head study, but you know, it gives us a signal. We'll see what that yeah. ends up being. Yeah, it's a first-line phase three study with Gemma Braxton. I have an I actually haven't investigated an initial trial sponsored by Ipsen that looks at this combination in first-line gastroesophageal uh, that we opened last year, and I'm very actually impressed by the tolerance of this regimen. Um, yeah, I agree. So. Yeah, I have patients on that trial as well, the phase three trial in PANC. And, um, and overall, I mean, just we have the, we are all used to using the Naliri in PANC. So it's easier than a totally new drug to, to deal with. We know how to, to how to treat our patients and what to look for and, and handle these patients also out in the community. Um, there's a familiar, familiarity with the, with the combo. Susanna, um, we're ending closely um, or finishing in, in the next 10 minutes. Tell us what, what's um, for you most exciting, new drugs, phase one, who made it into phase two? What is the new molecular target in colorectal, upper GI, um, you know, your, your impression, your views? Yeah, so um, I, was, I was very excited about the CRC, uh, Destiny CRC01. Um, you know, our breast colleagues and uh, are ahead of us, you know, got the approval in 2019. And then we have the gastric um, GE junction uh, approval, uh, was it December um, here in 2020, January 2020. Um, and so then now we see the data from colorectal cancer. Um, I thought it was interesting that they did a three arm study with looking at her three positive uh, or two positive ish positive versus two positive and one positive, just thinking that, you know, this is an antibody drug conjugate, we just leave the drug to the tumor and it's more the chemo and not a targeted pathway. But uh, I mean, there was no responses in two plus or one plus, but all the, you know, all the data was in three plus. Uh, that's, mainly. that's really interesting because the HER2 low and gastric cancer had a response rate of 24%. So that, but isn't that to do with how they, categorized differently the HER2 status in colorectal versus uh, gastric cancer, right? The actual scoring systems for uh, the proportion of cells that need to be positive are different, aren't they? Uh, so I wonder, is that why that reflects that? I, I didn't know that. It's really interesting. It's a beautiful paper. In, in, uh, I, was, I was making a presentation of this, actually, and that shows, I think it was in maybe CCR uh, a little while ago, that shows the uh, bystander effect of testosterone Derek's t uh, and you can see the actual topoisamorism uh, uh, but apart uh, diffusing into the tissue into the non-hair positive cells, to positive cells. So it's a really interesting drug. Yeah, and, and just looking at the waterfall plots, it's, it's just uh, the study is just uh, stunning. And I mean, so they did. Um, it was they had to be KRAS uh, wild type to go on the study. Um, but, you know, with the uh, response rate of more than 45%, I mean, in a heavily pretreated uh, cohort uh, patient population and an overall survival of more than 15 months, I thought the data was uh, stunning. We'll see, you know, how it goes in a later phase. But um, they were, they are looking further into this and also. The other thing I was thought it was interesting, so in breast, you know, they have the lower dose of 5.4, but both in gastric and now in the CRC, um, CRC population, they've chosen the 6.4. Uh, 
Um, and so um, I thought it was interesting that they are actually going to compare them head to head with the lower dose versus the higher dose, um, especially in view of the you know ILD um, with this drug. I mean, the waterfall plots are amazing. The, the efficacy is great, but then we have that 10% of, uh, of ILD. Um, I mean, when we look at the breast data, which is much, you know, much bigger, but they had about 13% of our ILD. They were actually great five toxicities in this study, right? Yeah, but within gastric cancer, the majority of them were mild ILD. Uh, yeah, but they, absolutely, yeah. But these were three deaths, I believe. Yeah, three deaths, yeah. I think it's proportional to the duration of time on treatment, the risk of ILD. Uh, so it's unfortunately, sadly, by definition, likely to be shorter in gastric cancer. Uh, that's a good point. Although they did see some of them pretty early on, starting quite early. Yeah, it can happen anytime. That's really the, the problem. And, um, you know, but I think uh, lowering the dose is probably a good idea to see if we can get the same efficacy that with, you know, the breast dose that was used. Um, and just using this drug in gastric cancer, um, I think lowering the dose to 5.4 hopefully will help the tolerability from that standpoint. It will be interesting to see the Destiny 2 results, I think, uh, in the Western population. So I think we're all looking forward to seeing those and seeing whether the efficacy is equivalent to what was seen in the, uh, in the original journal paper, which was Asian patients. Which is, again, another FDA approval in second line investment mm -hmm. population based on that phase and, two and, data in third line Asian population. I, I don't know how you guys get people on trials because you've got all these approvals. <laughs> and, you know, the, it's already on the NCCN guidelines. Mm -hmm. yep. or CRC. It, it, was a, it was approved right around you. I asked already. I have a patient on who's responding. It's a great drug. But, again. Yeah, I've got, we've got patients coming from all over the country because we, we, we put a fair number of patients on that trial and it's great to use it. So really looking forward to seeing the results. Anything else, um, Susanna, anything um, from uh, the drug development early phase GI um, you, you found particularly interesting? Yeah, so the um, we talked about pancreas cancer and, uh, you know, a really a high met need there, unmet need there, but I really like that the energy the one um, fusion, the Zinocotuzumab, the bispecific HER2-3 antibody. Um, very, I mean, so excited to see that data um, and to see those waterfall plots and the, um, you know, just this patient population. It was, I think it's overall 0.2% of solid tumors who have this energy fusion. So, you know, very small population. Uh, it's enriched in pancreatic cancer patients who are younger, who have KRS wild type. So again, a very small population, but the importance of molecular profiling and just finding those patients, the NTREC, the energy fusion, um, just uh, remarkable responses, but very few patients who would benefit. Um, but I thought that was, that was probably one I got most excited about. You know, the problem is that these energy one fusion results sitting in our inboxes for three or four years, no one is reacting. So we have recently found a, a breast cancer patient, three years, had a big foundation medicine panel um, or, or caris panel. No one has reacted um, to that. And, and so by chance, um, we found the energy, well, it, it was there, but um, someone looked at it in our genomics review board 
So with patients on now for more than a year, no, really pretty much no toxins and great responses. Um, this being a breast cancer patient, but really interesting um, that, and I, I think it just highlights um, that, I mean, pretty much every day we get new targets and we need to look um, at our 300 gene panels we use so often and often, you know, don't understand this, that those big panels have to go through genomics review boards or at least people understand genetics and, and the impact of, of those. So, and that's really uh -huh. the lesson learned. And then suddenly you find these. I mean, we, we have just in the last two weeks found um, two patients with her, her three mutations, which potentially also respond to, to that drug. And, and so, wow, here we are. So very interesting. And also, I mean, with this NRG1 fusion, that they find it much more with the RNA-seq rather, rather than the DNA sequencing. And so it's getting more and more complicated, you know? Uh. Absolutely. Good. I think we have, we're, well, we, we are over the hour. Um, anyone, any super highlights I forgot to mention to, to highlight? Um, it has been a great ASCO, although unfortunately the second time virtually, hopefully next year we, we see each other and do from BJ's, um, I guess BJ Oncology will have a nice round table the next time we're sitting all in one room and um, have that discussion live. So thank you again um, for your time this afternoon. Thank you BJ Oncology and um, really looking forward to, to meet, talk and um, exchange these um, new findings in, in the very near future. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post-ASCO GI cancer session of VJ Oncology. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.